0: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. This morning's epistle, which Pat read to us so eloquently, is a famous one, and I've never preached on it before. Be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his power, put on the whole armor of God. Paul speaks of the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit. When it comes to shoes, though, it's a user's choice. Crocs do just as well as Manolo Blahniks, apparently. This is a wonderful imagery, and it's a reminder that Christians do not face life's challenges with the same weapons with which our world is accustomed. He does not say the breastplate of Teflon or the sword of Atlantean hand-forged high-carbon steel a the Conan the Barbarian variety. No, Christian courage does not derive from the size of one's artillery pile or from the circumference of one's biceps. It comes from knowing the one for whom we stand. As the psalmist famously puts it, some trust in chariots, some in horses but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now much can be said about this material. We could dive into the details of trying to parse out and understand the contours of each of these spiritual weapons. What exactly is a breastplate of righteousness or a belt of truth? And how specifically do they function in any given set of adversarial circumstances. But I am not an expert in these things, and I think that if we were to explore them in great detail, we might get bogged down in the weeds and miss the forest for the trees. So instead, this morning, I wish simply to highlight two general points, which I hope will draw to the surface a rich vein or two, leading straight to your hearts this morning. First, armor. Why on earth might St. Paul wish for us to even think about such things? Isn't it unpleasant to come into a peaceful, well-lit, tastefully understated church and suddenly to be made to ponder imagery that inescapably brings with it notions of conflict? The need for armor, you see, presupposes the threat of some imminent assault. And to that I say, exactly. Whereas a German professor might say, genau. Scripture pulls our heads out of the proverbial sand. We live in a fallen and fickle world and the forces of evil are real, ever prowling around us and looking to extinguish our hope and confidence by any measure. Have you not occasionally felt moved to despair about the state of things in our world? I remember speaking with a parishioner who confided in me that she's always been a generally, upbeat glass-half-full kind of a girl. But recently, she said, I look around at the state of the world and I find it hard to feel any hope. Her words stuck with me, and I've heard them before from many others, young and old alike. Maybe a more pointed example comes from modern advertising algorithms. One cannot so much as even think about area rugs or eyewear or the purchase of a new car without almost immediately, like clockwork, being absolutely bombarded with advertisements, couture in their styling, meant to fit exactly your fresh craving. Your Instagram feed seems to be reading your mind or the side columns of your favorite news site online. Your data is being tracked and sold off and you, in turn, are being preyed upon at every turn by companies who seek your money and not necessarily your welfare. This morning's epistle is not caught off guard by these aspects of life. In fact, they are as old as Adam. Our passage this morning assumes that these elements are real and perpetually assaulting us in our daily lives. And you and I need God's protection every day. This is a theme that runs throughout all of our liturgy, our prayer book, and of course, our scripture. I could have picked any number of different old prayers, but here are two examples, just to show you how aware of this dynamic our tradition really is. This is the Collect for the third Sunday in Lent. We pray, Almighty God, who seest that we have no power of ourselves to help ourselves, Keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls that we may be defended from all adversities which may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts which may assault and hurt the soul. Or there's the famous collect for peace. O God, who art the author of peace and lover of concord, In whose knowledge, in knowledge of whom standeth our eternal life, whose service is perfect freedom, defend us, thy humble servants, in all assaults of our enemies, that we, surely trusting in thy defense, may not fear the power of any adversaries. My point is that our faith assumes that we need protection from God, that we are to some extent limited in our own abilities to protect ourselves and that in a crucial regard, this is where faith becomes real and active in the experience of our day-to-day lives. To conclude that we do not need protection is basically to be naive. Our Lord taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation. And it may be the most important piece of that entire prayer. For if that bit is not answered, we are surely sunk. But the second point I want to make is this. Paul is writing these words not to cause us each to cower like sniveling children in the corner of our room. No, he is writing to give us courage, to draw us up onto our feet, ensure confidence in God's mighty hand. We are not alone in life's assaults and we are to hold our heads high in the face of every challenge, trusting in the author of our salvation. This is no call to shrink, but to stand up for your Christian convictions with fresh vigor and determination and resolve. I have a brilliant therapist, and I hope you do too. And he recently gave me a new mantra, I think he called it. He said, John, for you, this will be helpful to remember. Run toward the cannons. Run toward the cannons. It's in, been, been in my head all week as I've been thinking about this passage. My favorite old example of this comes from the Disney classic, Sleeping Beauty. I wonder when the last time you watched that is. But you may remember at the very end, Aurora is in her stupor, and Prince Philip is in chains in the dungeon, in the basement. And by God's grace, the three fairy godmothers show up and they break him out of his chains. And you would think, aha, now he can escape and make a straight pathway to Princess Aurora to wake her. But no, right after they get him out of his chains, they give him two things, a shield with a giant red cross on it and a gleaming white sword and it's as though the moment he's been set free and arms himself all of these demonic henchmen begin to descend upon him down the stairs into the dungeon layer and By God's grace, thanks to the help of this new armor and sword, he's able to fight his way right to the top of the stairs. And then you think, good, he's home free. And no, the moment he steps outside and makes it over the drawbridge, some people from the top of the turrets, they launch these enormous boulders at him. And they're about to come crashing down on his head and boop, 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 the little uh, fairy godmothers are right there protecting him, and they fire off these little spells. They hit every single boulder, which in turn transforms into a giant opalescent bubble. Boop, boop, boop. And then thorns and bramble spring up on the drawbridge, bridge crossing over to where Aurora is. And with his sword, he is able to hack his way through them successfully, undeterred. And then finally, he encounters Maleficent herself, who tells him that she will summon all the powers of hell against him. And though he is completely outmatched and has no strength compared to her, in a moment when it looks as though she is indeed going to incinerate him with her flaming breath, he hurls the sword and it hits her right in the chest and immediately she dissolves into a pile of black ooze on the ground and the sword lands tip first in the middle of the black puddle, upright, forming a perfect, though we will certainly be buffeted and battered about by life's winds, Paul contends that you and I will not perish. In fact, things won't even get interesting, and your faith won't really have a chance to shine until the weather turns against you. Then, who knows? Maybe you'll end up like, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, standing in a furnace with Jesus by your side, miraculously untouched by the flames. Or like Daniel, thrown into a lion's pit, only to discover that God can turn a ravenous lion into a cuddly fur baby for a night. Or like Gideon's army, who simply stand on a hill, and watch the approaching enemy turn upon themselves so that Gideon's troops don't even have to pick up a spear to win the battle. Or like when the people of a little church called St. Matthew's, who when their new rector was slated to be instituted a November three years ago, braved a fluke blizzard which, by the way, stopped the bishop dead in his tracks on the Upper West Side and showed up, 80 strong, just to show their support. Or who met in below freezing weather for church in the woods last December rather than miss worship during a pandemic. Paul had his own experiences of this, and he tells us about them in one of my favorite passages, in his second letter to the Corinthians, listen to what God enabled him to endure. He says, I have been in prison more frequently. I have been flogged more severely and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once, I was stoned. Three times, I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. For the record, after the second shipwreck, I'm done. Anyway, I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brethren. I have labored and toiled, and I have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And yet the Lord sustained him, so much so that to this day, We read his story and identify with him in our own. Put on the armor of God. Amen.